All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here. This is Voice of Christian Israel. Unfortunately, Pastor Martins is still having issues with his web connection down in South Africa. They have rolling blackouts, and they have chosen to roll the blackouts into his area just as we go on the air. And I wonder if that's deliberate. <laughs> but uh, he says it's a three-hour ro- rolling blackout, but in, uh, in our show is right in the middle of that three-hour rolling blackout. So hopefully that will change soon. I guess uh, we'll have to pray for that, that uh, they change the pattern so that uh, he's got power when the uh, you know, when the show is supposed to go on. So we'll have to pray for that. And uh, get that going again, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, now today I've chosen, I want to continue the subject of the history of the Khazars. Oh, uh, but let me uh, not forget also that uh, Brother Aber has put a link to the calendar on the front page of Eurofolk Radio. So you can scroll up there at your leisure and look at that and click on that link. And then uh, also... Uh, my book, The Great Impersonation, fourth edition, is available from MoneyTreePublishing.com. That's all I'll be saying about that today. Uh, I really do want to get into this subject matter. So last time, uh, l- let me also put this link in the chat room as well, because this is really one of the best uh, articles I've ever read about the Khazars. And we started reading this last week. And I'm just going to read a little bit from it today because I I did read it last weekend. However, I didn't quite get the impact or import of it uh, last week because it was toward the end of the show. And I think I was just kind of rushing through this last paragraph. Anyway, uh, this is about a third of the way down. If you know how to scroll down or, or control F and find a word. The word uh, belligerent, did he spell it right here? Belligerent, I think he did. In the paragraph where, okay, here, here. The Roman emperor Heraclius or Heraclius. So if you search for the word Heraclius, spelled H-E-R-A-C-L-I-U-S, in 627 formed a military alliance with the Khazars for the purpose of a final defeat of the Persians. Upon the first meeting with the Khazar king, Zebel, with the Roman emperor, the Khazars displayed in full array their skills at diplomatic flattery, skills that would serve them well and would not disappear with their kingdom. He, that is Zebel, with his nobles dismounted from their horses, says Gibbon, fell prostrate on the ground to adore the purple of the Caesar, unquote. Okay, so I was just looking that over again today. I said, oh, the Jews have learned a few tricks from the Khazars. It's not all a one-way street. Okay, this is probably where the Edomite Jewish uh, Hittites, who did come up and merge with these Khazars later on, although what I'm going to talk about today is the presence of Jewish merchants among the Khazars at an even earlier period, 
which is the link that I posted earlier. But let me continue here. It says, they fell prostrate on the ground to adore the purple of the season. Well, they pretended to, right? Okay. So enamored was the Byzantine emperor with this display of obeisance that it eventually led to the offer, along with many riches, of the Caesar's daughter Eudocia. How dare you? Lily was talking. We can't. We can't offer our daughters to uh, Jews and Khazars. No, we can't do that. I guess that uh, king of Byzantium didn't know the law, did he? To offer his daughter Eudocia in marriage. That union never took place due to the death of Zebul while Eudocia was en route to Khazaria. Well, good for her. <laughs> All right. That would have been a hell of a life for her to be married to a Khazar. It's like uh, uh, Kennedy's wife being married to that uh, Jewish a mobster, right? Having to spend the rest of her... Well, I guess it's not so bad living on a, uh, a yacht for the rest of your natural life and having everything you want, but still, you're married to a Khazar. It's like being married to Jabba the Hutt, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm sure she didn't enjoy that period of her life at all, but, you know, she tolerated it, okay? So it's a good thing that Zebel died, and uh, saved her the, uh, di- what do you call it, the dishonor of having to be married to a, a Khazar chieftain. And then he says, finally, however, after the final defeat of Islam's designs on the northern kingdom in A.D. 730, a marriage between a Khazar princess and the heir to the Byzantine Roman Empire resulted in an offspring who was to rule Byzantium as Leo the Khazar. Oh, my God. So it went the other way. Thus, the king of the north had skillfully managed to place himself on the throne of the Roman Empire. Very well said. Very well said. So, but the point that I wanted to bring out here was, even the Jews, the Pharisaic Jews, can learn from the Khazars, and I bet the, the two put their heads together. Yeah, Diana, yeah, Diana and Dodie as well, right? There we go, folks. <laughs> Diana and Dodie. Okay, so yeah, that that was quoted from, uh, thanks to Nibblehorse for putting that uh, link in again, Ashkenazi Jews of Khazaria, History by Galen Ross, which I was just quoting from. But I'll be getting to that article next week. The one I want to get to this week is, let's see, did I put the link? Yeah, Strategic Culture, strategicculture.org, the Forgotten Judeo-Muslim-Christian Alliance and China's Silk Road. This is, I want to interject this story between uh, last week's episode and next week's episode, which I'm going to get back to the article I just read from. So if you'll click on that link, uh, strategic-culture.org, and the the title again, The Forgotten Judeo-Muslim-Christian Alliance and China's Silk Road. I'm going to scroll down to uh, underneath the first map, Mapping the Belt and Road Initiatives Progress. Uh, I don't know what that is all about, but apparently it's a modern version of the Silk Road a modern version of the Silk Road. And 
show that that the southern route from Moscow to Istanbul through Turkey through Iran at, on the on the way to China. Okay, the significance of all of this is that there were Jewish merchants all along the Silk Road before the Khazar Kingdom came to prominence. Okay, so the Heading of the first section I'm going to quote from is The Mystery of Khazaria in the Modern Era. Typically well-informed readers who frequent alternative media either have never heard of the Jewish Khazar kingdom that dominated Central Europe, Southern Russia, and the Caucasus. He misspells Caucasus. It's not S-E-S, it's U-S, S-U-S. Caucasus. On the 7th to 10th century or if they have heard of it, that is, they have heard of Khazars, they tend to believe that this kingdom was the source of everything evil up until modern times. Well, that is correct belief. <laughs> Mainstream scholars tend to simply deny all evidence that this Jewish kingdom had even, even existed. Since it throws into question the genetic connection of the Ashkenazi Jews to the Shemitic people of Palestine, which small-minded intellectuals demand to exist. Well, I'm not sure he's calling small-minded, but it is a fact that the Ashkenazi Jews do not have one drop of Shemitic blood flowing through their veins, and that includes, of course, Israelite blood and Judahite blood. Then under there, he has a more accurate... Well, this is a map of Khazaria itself and the kingdom that uh, was ruled over by the Bulan and the various kings of the Khazars. He continues, I would like to take a novel approach to this anomalous matter of Khazaria and the border role of Judaism in world, or broader role, the the Jews bordered it as, as Hittites, the broader role of Judaism in world history. Not only do I assert that the bountiful evidence allows us to conclude that this Jewish kingdom certainly did exist, but all existence evidence points to the fact that it was the very opposite to a hotbed of, of a, for evil Ashkenazi Jewry. Uh, that I would take exception to that. But uh, I think what he's getting at here is that there was a, before the Khazars became really powerful and started making war against the Russians and the Poles, etc., they attempted a la uh, Zebel's posture of pretending to be gracious, <laughs> right? Pretending to bow before the Ruskies and the Poles and the Germans. No, no, that they were devious. They were devious. So I think the author here has been taken in by the Jews. And it, and, and it says, so many lazy researchers. Are you saying I'm lazy? I don't think so. Anyway, Instead, this report will attempt to prove that the Forgotten Kingdom was not only a beautiful phenomenon uniting all three major Abrahamic faiths. Oh, no, that's too, that's too much. That's way, I would never say, say anything like that. Again, he's trying to paint a, a rosy picture of Judaism here. That's what his intention is. Anyway, all three major Abrahamic faiths. Well, Islam is not an Abrahamic faith. They, Islam only began 600 AD. It is, it is true 
that the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, and they had a faith, which was totally unlike that of Israel, but they were primarily pagans. So that these pagan Ishmaelites adopted Islam does not make an Abrahamic faith. Neither is Judaism an Abrahamic faith because the Jews are not the descendants of Abraham. Okay, so either this guy is a Jew or he's an apologist for the Jews. But the, the interesting thing here is the Silk Road that he talks about. But this also served, or this cooperation, to the extent that any cooperation existed between and among the Khazars, the the Jews, and the uh, and the Byzantium, the Eastern Empire, to the extent that there was any cooperation among them, which had to be testy at best. Okay. Let's see who draws the first sword. <laughs> I think that would sum up the, the relationship among these three kingdoms, among these three different peoples. I wouldn't make it any friendlier than that. All right. But he says it also served as a keystone to the newly reborn Silk Road trade routes uniting Asia with Europe through the Confucian Tang Dynasty, 618 to 912 AD, okay? So this forgotten commercial cooperation is something that scholars have missed. That's the importance of this document here. And so we need to explore this to understand why the Khazars became Jews. Because this commercial cooperation between Jewish merchants as far-flung as Iran and China were the merchants we would call the the trolls, <laughs> right, of the Khazar kingdom, okay? So this is a very important subject, uh, which I just stumbled upon. Uh, yeah, very good. Lily of the Valley, Edomites descend from Abraham, but not Jacob Israel, and that's, of course, what Yahshua meant in John Chapter 8, yeah, well, I grant that you are descendants of Abraham, but you were, and they said, well, we were never in bondage to any man. <laughs> well, the, neither were the Jews, right? So that, they admit that they were Jews by that, uh, by that statement. Anyway, so getting back to this. So he continues, and then, there he gives a broader map, and these maps are really very good. Figure three, the ancient Silk Road with a trade route through Russia. Okay. And there's a northern northern route, 10 A's, yeah, through Russia. And there's a southern route, which goes very, very far south, even into India. Okay. And up, the, uh, up toward Arabia and all the way down to Egypt. Okay. So the Silk Route went all the way to the Black Sea and all the way down to Egypt. Okay? Very good. And and you can see it's uh, East Asian uh, tentacles as well. This kingdom and the evidence of a broader intercultural alliance has been systematically obscured for centuries 
by the same oligarchy which is today attempting to consolidate an anti-human empire since acknowledgement of its existence undermines the foundations upon which the system of oligarchy is premised. Is he talking about the Khazars? The Khazarian Mafia? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Much of the following report was made possible by the pioneering work of historian Pierre Baudry in his online book, The Charlemagne Ecumenical Principle. Okay? Now, again, every one of these kingdoms would be practicing statesmanship at the length of a javelin (laughs) or one of those spears that the knights, you know, uh, uh, jousted with, okay? And you you have to deal with these, especially if you don't know their language, you have to be very careful how you address them. Well, the Jews did not have this problem because the Jews, these Jewish merchants, knew all of these different languages, at least enough to be, be engaged in sophisticated trade and sophisticated enough to cheat people out of, out of their money if they didn't understand Yiddish. And this is probably explains where Yiddish comes from. It's a conglomeration of all these different languages. So he states, Under a primitive version of Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations doctrine, the Byzantine Empire, their sister Venetian Empire, and the Ultramontane Church. I have no, I've never heard that expression. The Ultramontane Church which were the heirs of the recently collapsed Roman oligarchy, hated the rise of the Carolingian Empire under Charlemagne and the Augustinian humanist educational and economic reforms enacted during Charlemagne's reign. In other words, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire didn't get along. We know that very well. More importantly, they hated the brilliant alliances Charlemagne oversaw alongside his co-thinker Harun al-Rashid, Caliph of the Abbasid dynasty of Baghdad, who ruled from 786 to 809 AD, and the new King Mulan of Khazaria, who converted his kingdom to Judaism in the mid 8th century AD. Okay, so I'm not sure, maybe Charlemagne. What, what about here? You take a look at the faces of these kings, all right? Charlemagne on the left, looking very Anglo-Saxon. Harun al-Rashid, looking very Keturian, looking also like an Aryan, but not an Anglo-Saxon. Because, as I have pointed out many times before, the original Arabs were, in fact, the descendants of Abraham and Hagar, and they were white people. They didn't lose their whiteness until Islam began uh, extensive slavery operations by which they began to race mix with blacks and Indians and what have you. Okay? And then we have King Bulan with his, you can see the Mongolian. <laughs> features uh, in his face, okay? And again, he, he's sporting that uh, 
that goatee, no, no, not a goatee, he's a, <laughs> I forget what you call that, that long mustache, right, that droops down below your chin. The, uh, I think that was first worn by Vlad the Impaler, right? <laughs> or Vlad the Impaler picked it up from from King Bulan. All right, so the, the Khazars were obviously a race-mixed conglomeration of people, as we have stated many times. They're a combination of Khazars, which were Japhethites. The Japhethites, the Mongolian, and the Hittite Jewish, okay? Those are the three breeds that were blended together into the Khazar people. And then on the right, you have Emperor Zhang Zhang, Zhang who is obviously Chinese. Okay, so let's continue. The Turkish conversion to Judaism, the China Angle. Khazaria was first established in the mid-7th century by the Western Turkish Kaganate, that had become independent from any obedience to the Eastern Turkish parent empire when the later had been defeated militarily by the Taizong Emperor of the Tang Dynasty of China in 643 AD. That late, Eastern Turkey was actually defeated by the Chinese. Where did these Chinese go? Did they stick around and interbreed with the Turks? Let's find out. With the Western Kaganate's defeat, an important Chinese-Turkish alliance was established that endured for another century. I'll bet there was a lot of interbreeding going on there. That's where the Khazars get their Mongolian blood from, folks. With this 643 victory, the Chinese emperor was made Tengri Kagan. Heavenly King, supreme authority over all Turks. So now we have Mongolians and Turks blending together. 100,000 Turks then migrated to China's vastly expanded realm. I have never heard of this before. And 10,000 Turkish elites settled in the capital. Letters from various Turkish leaders to the Tang court all the way until 741 AD continued to recognize China's emperors as heavenly Kargan. I had no idea. I had never heard of this Chinese incursion into Turkey before. This is the first I've ever heard of this. Okay, my jaw dropped when I started to read this. Confucianism spread electrically, <laughs> kinetically, I would think, across the entire Turkish Empire. Confucianism! And the newly independent Turks of the West quickly established a highly developed centralized government in Khazaria, whose economy would be based primarily upon fisheries, and agriculture. See, not all of these people are Jews, Edomite Jews, who never farmed a day in their lives or did a day's work, a day, honest day's work, one single day of their lives, unless they were forced to under Anglo-Saxon rule. Kazaria became the keystone in the Silk Road with primary roots of the steppe Silk Road. That's the southern Russian 
uh, you know, part of the Silk Road. We saw the map above showing all the different directions it went. Going east-west overland from the Uyghur territory. Now, the Uyghurs were, in fact, Japhethites. If you study the mummies of the Uyghur people, they're pure white little, they're pure white little baby mummies with blue eyes and blonde hair and sometimes red hair are easily distinguishable from Chinamen. Okay, so here again we see that the Japhethite blood coming into play into Khazaria. And there, uh, the, the Uyghur territory in the east to western Crimea and the export-import lines along the Dnieper, Don, and Volga rivers where we have placed the Khazars without this, you know, without this insert, or this basically verifies our previous understanding that the Khazars and, uh, and the uh, The, the Jewish element therein, you know, lived in this territory. But, you know, the Russians, the Rus, who were Vikings, uh, when they became Christians, made war against these same Khazars and against these same Jews. And so there was nothing but tension among these peoples ever since, to this very day, Okay. So to the extent there was cooperation among these peoples, as this author is trying to claim was amiable, I don't think it was ever amiable. It was tense. It had to be tense because these cultures, these three different cultures were so disparate from one another that only a military alliance could be formed to against two against the other. And that's what happened. That's what happened, okay? So, and then, which fed into the Caspian and Black Seas, those rivers. Khazaria also held the vital north-south trade route along the Volga from Scandinavia through central Russia to Islamic Iran and Azerbaijan. Okay? So, there was a north-south trade route also went through Khazaria. So you can see that these Khazars are the trolls, are the trolls of history and legend. These are the people with, you had to pay the troll a toll to cross the bridge. This was, the bridge was in Khazaria, folks. So far, this is really good information. Okay, the, the next heading here is anomalies of Jewish Khazars. The fact that Khazars, Khazaria, was founded by Turks with a strong link to China cannot be overstated. But of course, we know these Turks had Hittite blood. When evaluating this, we must hold three important facts in mind. One, countless scholars have noted the strong Confucian philosophy embedded in the Western Turkish Khaganate that established the kingdom of Khazaria before King Mulan's later conversion to Judaism, sometime around 750 A.D. Even though they were shamanistic, the Confucian principle of the mandate of heaven was a core belief of the Khazarian Turks. Yeah, they were pagans all the way around. Two, 
The first recorded influx of Jews in China occurred in 618 AD with the start of the Tang Dynasty. As the Tang Emperor revived the Silk Road trade routes that had fallen apart after the fall of the Han Dynasty in around 200 AD, Buddhists, Hindus, Nestorian Christians, Zoroastrians, Muslims, and Jews flocked to China. Why would they do that? Because of the trade involved. This was an an especially positive breath of fresh air for Jews, as Professor Pan Guang stated, quote, they could preserve their native customs and religious beliefs in education, work, buying and selling of land, marriage, and the right to move. They enjoyed the same rights and treatment as the Han Chinese. They never faced discrimination, unquote, as they would among the Christians and actually never faced discrimination among the Christians until the Jews began cheating us out of house and home with their usury. Okay, so I guess the Chinese people didn't have enough money to, <laughs> to, to even bother borrowing money from a Jewish moneylender. So they just engaged in trade. Okay, again, you find, as is true in all of Europe, that Jewish merchants had to be tolerated or even empowered by the ruling class of whatever country they were in. This is true in Poland, especially in Poland, because of the, oh, what was the uh, the act, the edict the, of one of the Polish lords, the king of Poland at the time, who declared that the Jews would have the right to engage in money lending, uh, liquor uh, peddling and, and distilling, etc., etc., and that was around 1025 A.D. And the Jewish people had been suffering under the sub hegemony of the Jews because this this situation could not have even developed without the encouragement of the feudal lords of Poland who benefited as the recipients of the tax monies that the Jews as tax collectors for the nobility would give them. All right, so they didn't have to, although it's quite evident to me that these Jewish tax collectors were accompanied by the soldiers of the realm. Okay, so this was a joint venture between the Jews and the Polish and other feudal lords. This situation did not obtain in Russia, however. The Russians never gave the Jews any inroad into the lives of the peasants. Okay? And that was true until the Bolshevik Revolution, folks. And this is why the Jews hated the Russians so much, because the Russians would never give them a national bank which the Polish people did. Okay, let's continue. This tolerant Chinese policy stood in stark contrast to the Byzantine-directed persecution and forced conversions that had run rampant across the West. Now, this is not persecution. 
the Byzantines had every right to preserve their Christian heritage against Jewish hegemony, or even sub-hegemony. And the reason why the Byzantine Empire lasted as long as it did for over a thousand years, up until 1453 A.D., was because they kept the Jews in check. They would not allow the Jews to engage in money lending. Or they would not allow the Jews to become officials of the government, which happened in Spain. Christian Spain allowed the Jews to get into money lending and get into the churches where they subverted the churches and to be advisors to the kings and queens of Spain. Well, Byzantium never allowed this. This is why Byzantium lasted so long. All right? So let's continue. Much of this persecution, he says, stemmed less from religious reasons and more from geopolitical ones, as the earlier Jewish Himyaritic, that's another new word for me, Himyaritic, H-I-M-Y-A-R-I-T-I-C, Himyaritic Kingdom's conversion to Judaism in 380 CE. Is this a, what, what, part of the world was this Himyaritic kingdom in. In 380 CE AD Oh, okay. Let me, this, uh, I thought this was another sentence here. Sorry. So let me just read this whole sentence. Much of this persecution, so-called, stemmed less from religious reasons and more from geopolitical ones as the earlier Jewish Himyaritic kingdom's conversion to Judaism in 380 AD, so there was another Jewish kingdom that he refers to as the Himyaritic, destroyed Byzantium's designs to take control of Arabia. Okay, so, all right. So, these Jews destroyed a portion of Byzantium's kingdom, and now it's, now it's called persecution when you restrict Jews who un, undid part of your kingdom, <laughs> Right? No, I'd say that it's fair play. Waves of violence descended upon Jews during this time and beyond Himyaria's collapse in 525 AD as vengeance for resisting imperial hegemony. Okay, like I said, it's fair play. How dare you call it persecution? Three. The primary group in this earlier phase of the renewed Silk Road roots were Jewish Radhanate traders. Again, a new word for me. R-A-D-H-A-N-I-T Radhanate traders originating from the city of Radan in Iraq. Okay, so these were Iraqi Jews. And apparently this kingdom that he refers to as Himyaritic is this area of Iran, or sorry, Iraq. According to Persian scholar Al-Masudi, 896-956, these Jewish traders spoke Arabic, Greek, Persian, Slavic, Spanish, and Frankish. Now, you would think that any trader who knew at least portions of all of these languages would have a decided advantage against any other traders. Okay, this is how... So here we see the beginning 
of Jewish internationalism, folks, because they learned these languages through their trading operations. So what are the Khazars? What are the Ashkenazi Jews, if not internationalists? Yes, Lily, you're absolutely right. Jews have changed the meaning of punishment or revenge to persecution. Thank you very much. Okay. And Sussex man says, Rus, Rus was the 11th son of Benjamin. The, the Rus were certainly part of the Russian kingdom. So were, and, and the Vikings descended from Dan, the Danites of Sweden. Uh, the, the Rus were partly Dan and partly Rosh. Okay, thank you very much. All right. And Nibelhor says the Himyaritic kingdom or Himyar, historically referred to as the Homerite kingdom by the Greeks and the Romans, was a polity in the southern highlands of Yemen, as well as the name of the region which it claimed. Okay. Himyaritic. So, Yemeni Jews, folks. Yemeni Jews. That's who they are. Let's continue. Thank you for all that input in the chat room. That uh, added a lot to my education here. All right, so let's continue. So, yeah, yeah, part number three, point number three, the primary group was the Jewish Radonite traders taking, the, taking us all the way down to Yemen. And I think Yemen is part of that map that we looked at earlier. Okay. Uh, and according to the 9th century geographer Ibn Kurdabe, Kurdabe, he was probably a Kurd. The Kurds were white people descended from, probably from, uh, who, who, whose third wife? I'm trying to think of Abraham's third wife again. Uh, damn, the name escapes me. It was Hagar, Sarah, and, <laughs> and Keturah. They were probably descendants of Keturah. Okay? That's a mnemonic device I like to use if, if I'm forgetting something. Okay. So, let's continue. There were four Radonite trade routes linking Europe to China. The primary and most active corridor moving through the Middle East and to Europe was the Steppe Silk Road, much of which under the jurisdiction of Khazaria. Okay, so these Yemeni Jews were the ones who learned all these different languages and became, became the international traders already starting... 380 A.D. 380 A.D. So were these Yemeni Jews related to the Hittite Jews of Turkey? I would think so. They stem from Edom, both groups, the Hittites, and these Yemeni Jews come from Edom. Okay? Esau, Edom. This explains a lot as to how the Khazarian Jews had such an international flavor, okay? I assumed it was just because, well, all these these trade routes converged upon Khazaria, but there's this Yemeni Jewish connection, which I had never known of before. Let's continue. 
the ecumenical diplomacy as a lesson for today's Middle East. Al-Masudi reported his meadows of gold that the Jewish Khazars had established an incredible military alliance with the Islamic Abbasid dynasty, who supplied an army of 10,000 Muslim soldiers to the Jewish Khazars under the condition that if any future Jewish leader were to declare war on Islam, that army would fight for Islam. This incredible safeguard was a creative flank which brought about the which brought the self-interest of both cultures together in ways that made orchestrated imperial conflict nearly impossible. In other words, Byzantium didn't have a chance. This was even before Joseph the Bulan of Khazaria had to decide whether his kingdom would be Jewish, Christian, or Islamic. So there was already an alliance between Islam and the Khazars. So which way do you think the jo- Bulan, Joseph Bulan would go? Another distinguishing feature of Khazaria was its unique judicial system, which wisely represented the diverse faiths which sought refuge in this Jewish land. Khazaria had co- become renowned for its tolerance and openness. Now, of course, this tolerance and openness is for Islam because of the military alliance. What about Christians wandering through Khazaria? <laughs> I'll bet they were in fear of their lives. Anyway, the majority of the population were a mix of Christian, Muslim, and pagan, though the king and his court were Jewish. So, there's tolerance by Jews for us as long as they can exploit us. 10th century Persian historian Abu al-Istakri described the Khazarian Supreme Court of Justice whose judges comprised two Christians, two Muslims, two Jews, and one pagan, stating, quote, The king has seven judges, Hukan, from the Jews, Christians, Muslims, and idolaters. <laughs> when the people have a lawsuit, it is they who judge it. The parties do not approach the king himself, but only these judges. That is fascinating, folks. Now, what kind of Christians would these be, folks? Would they be like the Christians of the imperial court who wanted to have marriages with these pagan Khazars? Is that the type of Christian we're talking about? The Abbasid dynasty played another indispensable role in preserving the Silk Road and Confucian Renaissance in conjunction with their alliance with Khazaria. At a decisive moment in 755 AD, the Tang dynasty faced a terrible crisis known as the Anxi Rebellion. When a renegade general An Lushan declared himself emperor of the north, threatening both civil war and the dissolution of the new Silk Road. Caliph al-Mahdi, grandfather of the great Harun al-Rashid, sent 4,000 Muslim soldiers to aid the emperor in putting down the rebellion, preserving the ecumenical alliance. Okay, so we see the strength of the Islamic-Mongol alliance, or Asiatic alliance. It is unfortunate that the Tang dynasty was never able to recover to its pre-Civil War prestige, and the Silk Road lost valuable vitality 
just as the Christian Jewish Muslim Alliance was attaining its apex. Okay? Well, he forgets to mention the Christian Jewish Mongolian Muslim Alliance, okay? Because of the civil war back in Asia. Very, very interesting. So this really casts new light on the Khazars, who they are, how they emerge, and the role of Judaism within the Khazar kingdom. Now, I think we have time for one or more sections here. Septimania, Europe, entry into the Silk Road. We have already noted that many surprising and important ecumenical alliances around a higher concept of divine justice and common good in opposition to the policies of the Second Roman Empire, which operated exclusively on divide-to-rule tactics. However, we have left out another important creative alliance worth mentioning. Uh, the Second Second Roman Empire, I think he's talking about uh, the Holy Roman Empire? I think that's what he means by that. Or is he talking about Byzantium? I'm not sure. Anyway, in 751, the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain lost a major territory called Septimania, or Septimania in Spanish, to the new Carolingian dynasty of a Frankish king named Pepin, the short father of Charlemagne, who ruled from 751 to 768. So I guess he is talking about the Holy Roman Empire, the emerging Holy Roman Empire. Septimania, a large area which hosts the strategic port city of Narbonne, had a large Jewish and Muslim population from which which Pepin and his son allied with against the intrigues of Venice and Byzantium. This area, now Venice, who controlled Venice is other Jews. (laughs) This area later, they, they do fight amongst each other too, folks. This area later became a leading Renaissance zone reviving the study of Greek classics, astronomy, poetry, and medicine under the Andalusian Renaissance centuries later. Okay, that's after the Christians expelled the Muslims but failed to expel the Jews. That's always a mistake. If you're going to expel people, you always expel the Jews with them. Rather than fall into Jewish versus Christian versus Muslim conflicts, which the oligarchy would have liked, Pepin instead called for a Jewish leader from Baghdad descended from the house of David supposedly named Natranai al-Makir, 725 to 765, to become king of Septimania, even giving his daughter Alda to Makir as his wife. Al-Makir in turn gave his Jewish daughter to King Charlemagne, oh my God, in, (laughs) in marriage, as part of a diplomatic flank against the warmongers in Rome, I had no idea. Whoa! So, King Charlemagne had a Jewish wife. Charlemagne ended the anti-Jewish policy dominant in Europe for centuries and even gave Jews rights to land ownership and titles unprecedented in that age. However, he did abolish usury. Whenever Charlemagne or his father established diplomatic embassies with the Muslim Abbasids, diplomatic envoys selected were always Jewish. Okay, here here again, the Jewish advisors. 
using Jewish emissaries to go from one kingdom to another. This is why the Jews became such experts at diplomacy in and among other nations. Charlemagne, apparently, was instrumental in developing this process. So, fie on you. Fie on you, Charlemagne. That was a huge mistake. All right, let's continue. With about nine minutes left. Ultramontane Pope Stephen III, who advocated a clash of civilizations policy, attacked Charlemagne's policy in 76 AD, writing to the Archbishop Aribert, quote, Christians work the vineyards and the fields of these Jews. Christian men and women live under the same roof as these prevaricators, listening to their blasphemous language night and day. These miserable men and women always have to humiliate themselves before the demeaning display of dogs. What communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Hooray, hooray, hooray! Now there's a pope worth praising. Uh, no, actually he wasn't pope. He was archbishop. Archbishop. All right. Very good. Very good. So, Archbishop Aribert. Underline that. Remember that name. The governance, oh, Pope, both Pepin and Charlemagne ignored the Vatican's many demands to renounce their ecumenical program. Yeah, ecumenism. But the Catholic Church embraced ecumenism later. The governance of Septimania was later divided by Charlemagne with one-third under the authority of Archbishop Thomas of Normandy, one-third under the Islamic Viscount, and one-third under Jewish governance, ironically putting a Muslim territory under Jewish and Christian protection. <laughs> Indeed. Irony of ironies. Well, doesn't they all say? Politics makes strange, very strange bedfellows. This policy of creative war avoidance and win-win collaboration, collaboration tied into a Muslim-Christian agreement led by Harun al-Rashid in 800 A.D., when he gave control of the Holy Land to Charlemagne, declaring that the Christian leader's land would be protected by Muslim rule. According to the records of the monk Zacharias, this diplomatic entente was negotiated by Charlemagne's Jewish ambassador to Baghdad, Isaac of Rachen. Wow, my view of Charlemagne has dropped to the bottom of the barrel. Finding this out. Figure 6. Julius Kuckert, Charlemagne, and Harun al-Rashid. So there's even a portrait of these characters. <laughs> so maybe Charlemagne figured, well, if he, if he has an edict against usury, maybe Christians might survive? <laughs> I don't know. It's odd that this alliance should form. Maybe this alliance formed after he declared, the, made this edict, and he didn't want to revoke one of his own edicts. But let's continue here. The Carolingian Renaissance. Without going into the details of Pepin and Charlemagne's bold reforms, 
centering on infrastructure, vast roads, bridges, override, canals, cathedrals, and schools. And, of course, all of this infrastructure would facilitate trade, don't you know? Their Irish monastery movement and financial reforms, which saw private financiers lose control as Charlemagne's government took control of coinage and credit. Okay, so maybe uh, after an, an initial really bad decision, Charlemagne took control of trade. It is enough for now to know to state that the Carolingian Renaissance earned its name for the right reasons. The philosophical basis for Charlemagne's ability to break with anti-Jewish hate there was no anti-Jewish hate. The Jews were persecuting Christians throughout all this period and taking advantage of them, the Christians and others, with imperfect weights and measures. And inflation is a form of imperfect weights and measures. Okay. It was found in the doctrine of witness formulated by St. Augustine in the early 15th century, which asserted that Jews should no longer be slaughtered, but rather protected since their very existence and adherence to the Old Testament ha, 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 was a living testimony to the Christian faith. So the Jews pulled the wool over his eyes. For shame, Augustine. For shame. So, this is why, this explains why many other popes and many other feudal lords protected the Jews. You get it? You get it? This, is, this set the precedent here of Christian monarchs protecting Jews. And then later on, the Jews became their advisors and tax collectors. These children of the devil, the synagogue of Satan fraternizing with Christian monarchs. Didn't we just say yesterday on Genesis to Revelation that it it says in the book of Ezra that it was the principal men of Judah who were guilty of this sin of racial intermarriage. Why? Because they were the ones who stood to make money by doing business with Jews, Greeks, Romans, etc. Folks, this is a very enlightening article. I don't have time to finish the rest. So I encourage you all, you've got the link. I'll post the link uh, uh, when we upload this show. Folks, again, Our monarchs, our so-called Christian monarchs, have done a terrible job of controlling the Jews and their usury and their synagogue of Satan. And that is probably one of the reasons why Martin Luther uh, turned against the, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church as well. Martin Luther, even though he initially accepted money from the Jews to make war against the Catholic Church, he realized they were were only exploiting him. And so he turned against them big time when he wrote The Jews and Their Lies. The Jews and Their Lies. That book has been given zero publicity, even by the Lutherans, right? And certainly by the Jews. The Jews don't want you to read that book. 
So this article really throws a lot of interesting historical light on how the Khazars became Jewish, how the Khazars became powerful, and how Jewish mercantile advantages came about at the expense of Christian kingdoms, Muslim kingdoms, etc. Now, the Muslims had a similar policy as Byzantium to the Jews. Namely, they would allow the Jews to engage in trade and commerce and merchandise, but they would not allow the Jews to any part of the government. Okay? That's how they kept their Jewish problem under control. The Christians, however allowed these Jews to get as high as second-in-command, to be advisors to kings and queens, to be moneylenders of the realm, despite the fact that they were Christ-haters and Christ-killers. This is much to the discredit of the Christian monarchies and I think is in part fulfills the prophecy that the bad figs, the evil figs, who who were Judahites who were transplanted to Europe, would be very evil. Here you go, folks. The transplanted Judahites who refused to go to Babylon for their good, okay, for their good, went west, went to Ireland, went to Europe to became the become the kings and queens of Europe. Very, very bad leadership from these people. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. Whoa. Whoa. A brand new perspective on Kazaria. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yahweh bless.